In our last broadcast, we began a consideration of the Great Tribulation from Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 26. We didn't get far, though, because we had to lay down some groundwork. Welcome, everyone, to the Bread of Life. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, the Director of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bible Teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. I'm hoping that I can introduce the next segment of our lesson succinctly. Before I do, though, let me remind you to go to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org to learn about our missions work internationally and locally our church in Boise, Idaho. Here is what we learned from Matthew 24 in our last broadcast. Jesus is taking a near event in the destruction of the temple soon to take place and projecting out from it a teaching on the great tribulation that looms as a great climax of God's judgment in the future. There are those, they're called preterists, who think all the Bible prophecies have been fulfilled basically at the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It's all locked away in the past. Today we're going to address this idea in part, and we're going to dispute it. There are those who want to look at what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, 15 through 26, and what he says in Mark chapter 13 in the parallel passage, and also in Luke, and they want to say that all of that prophecy was completely fulfilled in the time period in which Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, and that all that is taken care of, and basically you can take all the apocalyptic messages that you find in the book of Revelation and Daniel, and you can all sum it up and tie it up into that one period of time in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, and we're done with it. We don't have to worry about that. Now we're just moving forward until the Lord Jesus returns, and it's becoming a popular position again in our day and age, and They see the words of Matthew and Mark as speaking to that time, as referring to that time that took place just before the temple was destroyed. So just a little bit of history again for you here. Back to 70 AD. This is only 30 or 40 years after the Lord Jesus has spoken these words of the destruction of the temple. Back at that time, four years before 70 AD, 66 AD, the Jewish people started to rebel against the Romans. And the Romans sent a general from Syria by the name of Gallus to come down, and he surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And he could have destroyed the city of Jerusalem at that time. But for some reason, he got nervous. Some speculate that he had broken his supply lines back to Syria, and he was a little concerned. And so he retreated from destroying Jerusalem at that time, which emboldened the rebels of the Jews. And so they came out from Jerusalem. They set up an ambush of the army of Gallus, and they created tremendous harm to his army, and they defeated a good portion of his army before Gallus was able to retreat back into Syria. And that didn't end things. That just began things. Because after that, a general by the name of Vespasian came and began to try to put down the rebellion. Vespasian ultimately became the emperor of Rome and got called back to Rome. And Vespasian sent his son Titus to come and put down the rebellion. And it's Titus that will show up in 70 AD and after a four-month siege will enter into Jerusalem and destroy it. And destroy the temple at that time. But it was in 66 AD, folks that Jerusalem was surrounded like we read in Luke chapter 21. It's the first time that's surrounded by the Roman armies and it's ready to destroy them. But there are individuals who look at this event and say this is an answer to all that was prophesied at that time and all of the horrible things that happened in 70 AD, that's the picture of the time of trouble that's greater than any other time in the history of the world up to that time and after that time. And it was pretty bad. When Titus came into Jerusalem, it's 
It's estimated by Josephus. Most scholars disagree with Josephus' numbers and think that it was significantly less than this, but Josephus said, the historian Josephus, who was alive at that time and saw it taking place, Josephus said that there were 1.1 million Jews that were killed in Jerusalem at that time. He describes it, entering into the temple where they had all fled into the temple where the destruction was taking place, and when the Roman soldiers entered there, that the bodies were heaped up on top of one another, and the dead bodies were slithering off of one another onto the ground, and this great slaughter that took place. It's a graphic and horrible picture, and it was at that time that the temple was destroyed. But there are some other things that are kind of interesting if you study history. You'll find out that this fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD did not end the Jews' presence in Israel. It was not at that time that they were evacuated from Israel. That didn't take place until 135 AD, so some 65 years later. It was in a rebellion called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. And Simon Bar Kokhba was a general that rose up who believed that he was the Messiah. And that he came as the Messiah to rescue the people. And he led one final rebellion. And they actually took over Jerusalem and they began minting their own money. And they drove off the Romans again. And the Romans came against them at that time. And at that time they brought about such a great slaughter that most scholars again believe that it was greater and more significant that took place in the end of 70 AD. At that time there were so many Jews that were put into slavery that it was said that in the marketplaces of Hadrian, who was the emperor at that time, that it depressed the value of slaves so that slaves were being sold for cheaper than a horse because there were so many of that were flooding the markets. And at that time, there's over 580,000 soldiers, Jewish soldiers that were slain. Add on top of that all of the Jews that died from various diseases and famines and all the destruction that the Romans brought on the land at that time. At that time, we're told that the Roman armies destroyed 50 fortress cities in Israel. That means that the Jews were still around after 70 AD. They hadn't left the land. They still had all their fortified cities. And that there were 985 villages that were completely destroyed. That means that the Jews were still living in the land, occupying their villages, minting their coins. Not only that, after 70 AD, even though the temple was destroyed, the sacrifices didn't stop. They were still offering sacrifices on the temple grounds, in the ruins of the temple grounds. And initially, by the way, they had a treaty with Hadrian that they could continue to do so on the temple grounds. But after the rebellion, Hadrian took over the city. He took over the temple. He banished the practice of Judaism in the land of Israel. He changed the maps so that the names no longer had the name Judea on the land, but he changed it to the word that we get Palestine for now, Syria-Palestina. And that's what he changed on all the maps. He refused to let any Jews enter back into Jerusalem at all. So they couldn't practice their Judaism and they could not enter into Jerusalem at that time. This is 135 AD. This is 65 years after the prophecy of 70 AD that the Lord Jesus gave. He set up again a statue to Jupiter in this temple and a statue to himself. And he called for sacrifices to Jupiter in the temple. And then he collected all of the holy scrolls of the Judaic faith and he ceremonially had them burned on the altar in Jerusalem at that time. And at that point in time, it's estimated that there were at least two million Jews in the land before this took place. After the Bar Kokhba rebellion, there's not 5,000 in the land of Israel. The Jews do not turn to Israel and have a center for their identity and their culture throughout all the time of history until just the modern period of time that we're in right now. They're totally banished from the land. That's even more significant than what happened in 70 AD. You know, oh, everything that was fulfilled and everything that was prophesied was answered in 70 AD. Well, no. 
Let's say 135 AD. Well, no. Let's say these things are expressions of these birth pangs that we talked about. Expressions of the cycle of God's prophetic movement in the days of the Lord expressing themselves and energizing the history of man until that final great and last spasm in which great tribulation will come upon the land. I think that probably is a better way to understand and look at these things. Well, history lesson's over for a moment at least. We might go back to it in just a little bit, but let's take some notes now from our text. I want us to just take away some things that we're looking at at these texts and understand what the Lord Jesus is speaking of. The Lord Jesus is speaking of that time that's coming at 70 AD, and the Lord Jesus is fanning out possibly to what happened in 135 AD, but we have to recognize it's a prophecy that's projecting itself out to the very end. It is language that reflects kind of the day of the Lord language that you find throughout the Bible in which there are intermediate days of the Lord in which you see these flashpoints of the day that's coming and the day that's coming. But there is a day that's coming to conclude it all. And the Lord Jesus ultimately has his eyes on those things as did the disciples. But here's the first thing I want you to note here and take away from it. It's from what Luke says here. This is a time of vengeance. Write it down. This is a time of vengeance. Luke writes uh, the Lord Jesus' words, For these are days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. (laughs) It's devastating language here. These words are particularly sobering. God has seen the sins of Israel through the years. He's not only seen it, but he's entered their sins in his record book. And now upon the unrepentant nation, he is about to exact payment. For years, the nation has accumulated their sins against God, and soon the cup of judgment, Jesus is saying, is going to be full, and it's going to be poured out upon them. The gates of God's patience are going to be opened up, and the flood of God's wrath is going to be poured out upon the land, and they're going to be turned out from their inheritance, and they're going to be tread upon from the time of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is complete. And we're still in that time. The end of the time of the Gentiles has not yet to be reached. And what we need to take from this is that what is true of individuals is also true of nations as well. God keeps record of our sins individually, and he keeps record of the sins of the nations as well. He oversees the nations too, and he brings the nations into judgment. In fact, this understanding is what informed Abraham Lincoln when he wanted to give an explanation for the Civil War. And what he saw was the Civil War, the way he explained the Civil War was an explanation that there was a providential God who was ruling over all things, and he held the nation into account for its sins. At his second inaugural address, he explains his understanding of why the Civil War took place. There were 750,000 soldiers that died during the Civil War. If we were to have it take place in our day and age with the population base we have right now, and they were the statistics were to be equal, it would be over 7 million dying during that period of time. And Abraham Lincoln expresses what he believes is the cause of this war in his second inaugural address. Let me quote this to you. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of the offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, 
Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still must it be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. We're paying. This is God's vengeance for our sin and the wickedness of our land. That's the profound words that Abraham Lincoln pronounced when he began his second term as president of the United States. This is God's judgment on this great sin of our nation. Now, God reveals to us that the end of the age will bring about one final moment and brings all the nations to account, but God also reveals that throughout history it's punctuated with cloudbursts of his wrath and of his vengeance upon the nations. It will end in this great period of the tribulation in which his vengeance is poured out upon the nations. It's their due. But one of the applications simply is this. Don't think that our land can escape God's vengeance. Don't think that our land can escape God's judgment for the evil and the wickedness that takes place within it. He notes it. He sees it. He records it. And he will demand a payment for it. Well, thank you for listening to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. To learn more about our ministry, let me suggest you go to one of two websites. Go to traincpe.org to learn more about the work we're doing all over the world to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Or to learn about our work in your community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, God bless you.